you all for excellent introductions to what you do. Uh, we've got a real good idea of all these people and, and why they've started their business and the journeys they've been on since they've begun. I'm getting the thumbs up from the back. That's always, good. always a good sign. Um, but what I wanted to start off asking you are basically questions that um, entrepreneurs ask us as investors. Uh, and one of them is uh, always about hiring and about building out your early team. Because I think all of the prospective founders in the audience, maybe you've got your co-founders in mind already, maybe you've just got that idea niggling at the back of your head and you're wondering how to take it to the next phase. Something that's quite an, uh, a leap into the unknown is how do you hire the first person that isn't you? Or how do you hire those first people that aren't you and your co-founder? Or especially if you're one of the doctors on the panel, how do you hire your first non-medical person? And what a, what's a web developer even do? What does a good one smell like and look like? Um, as you're holding the mic, Jamie, I'm going to come to you first. How did you make that first hire? Okay, I, I was extremely lucky, actually, because um, so I, what I'd done is I pivoted to this new model. Um, and we had a bit of cash, but not much. Um, and it was, you know, I, one of my sort of strengths, I'm sort of, I'm very much a big vision, sort of, um, you know, very sort of, uh, I, I'm not a, a sort of accounting or sort of really precise type. I, I'm very much sort of big vision and sort of mo very marketing focused. And I was extremely lucky because I, uh, Karina, who's now my COO, uh, who's a German accountant who had worked, essentially scaled a previous sort of VC-backed um, business, just contacted me out of the blue. Um, and it turns out that she had really complementary skills to me. And I think ultimately, you know, that's what you need, is you need people with complementary skills to you. And you need to, so first of all, you need to work out what are your strengths um, and then find someone with complementary strengths to you. And, and I appreciate that's a bit simplistic, but, um, you know, in really in a business, early stage business, in a tech business, you, you probably need one sort of founder type who is very much... The, the sort of uh, product or the, the sort of um, marketing person. You need someone who's going to manage your operations, and then you need a highly technical um, person. You know, not a CTO necessarily, but someone who is, a, you know, a really good developer. Um, yeah. Um, so I actually have been very unlucky um, numerous times, and I've got it wrong loads, basically, um, and. So I've now developed this really ruthless process, vigorous process that I go through every time um, without fail now. Um, and the way that, that it works is as follows. Um, I have uh, this amazing recruiter called Peter Chatterley. If anybody wants his details, I can pass them on. The reason why he's different is because he charges by the hour. So um, it, it just, it's much cheaper and it works much better. Um, what I do is I... So, for example, I was just looking for a VP of sales recently. Um, I knew the companies that I wanted to poach from. Um, one of those was Just Eat. Uh, they've just IPO'd. Excellent, because it means a lot of people want to jump ship. Um, and there were a kind of number of other companies that I, I also knew that I, you know, other marketplaces where I think they do a pretty good job of sales. So I went to Peter and I said, Peter, please can you go on LinkedIn and look for every single person that works or has worked in these companies and put it in an Excel spreadsheet and put the LinkedIn links um, next to them. I then contacted, he, he gave me a list of like 50 people. Um, I contacted every single one of them three times. Um, the first time, a lot of people don't come back to you. The second time, and, and it also has to be the CEO that does this, by the way. 
The second time, um, the response rate increased by like 50%. And the third time, I think like 80% of the people that I contacted at least came back to me with an either yes or a no. Um, they respect your persistence. Um, they might not have seen it the first time. Um, and just generally pestering people works really well. Um, so once, once I've done that, I've kind of whittled it down to like say about 10 people. Um, I bring them in, I meet them first, and I ask three questions. Um, do I like them, to Jamie's point? Are they smart? And can they get it done? And those three things are really important. Um, and you kind of can test that in many different ways. I'm sure you can be creative and think of something. Um, and then after that, I ask them to meet every single person in my senior team. And every single person has to say yes. If one person says no, then they, they can't join. Um, and then the very, very last thing, well, it's pretty much just a kind of final stamp of approval. They come to the pub and they meet everybody in our team. Um, and we just kind of see how they interact with everybody. Um, but yeah, we, we never, we don't divert from that process anymore because we have got it wrong quite a few times. So hopefully that's helpful. That's a really interesting answer when it comes to a wonderfully specific way of hiring people who almost self-qualify through their previous jobs and positions. Please pass the mic down to Jean and Andre because what I'd like to ask them is how do you hire uh, individuals from a highly specific industry that are, is not your area of expertise. The reason I'm asking these two guys is because touch surgery employs some of the best animators you're likely to come across in London. I don't know how well either of these guys draw, I'm sure very well, but uh, it's, it's certainly not, they're, they're both surgeons, so it's certainly not their primary expertise. How did you even start that process? Um, <coughs> I guess... If anyone's ever seen any films, there is only a couple of major studios that make serious movies. And so Pixar was one of them. And I remember just spending a huge amount of time looking for people who worked at Pixar on big movies who happened to be in London. I found someone who was really into startups, had a blog. And then I ended up just stalking that person and eventually managed to bring them on board. For us, the key was hiring people that we trusted to hire them. And so we've got a pretty awesome team right now of you know, Tom's around and Kim's around, of individuals who have spent a huge amount of time in the industry. And once you find those key individuals, then you just let them do the hiring for you. And all you have to do really is empower them with a process and some attributes that people feel would fit into your culture. Andre, would you agree? If, if you've got anything to add on that, Andre. I think the, the mission of what you're trying to achieve is really important. It's like, you know, <clears throat> we didn't go out to these people from Pixar and say, hey, I'll pay you X thousand pounds a year or whatever. I mean, it was like, you know, <laughs> we literally said, we are not going to pay you as well as Pixar does. But do you want to make movies or do you want to change global surgery? Right? It's the, the mission is really, really important. What you're trying to achieve, what the long-term vision is, you know, that's going to attract a lot of people to, to what you want to do. You know, don't hire people who are in it for the money. Don't hire people who are in it for the options. Hire people who are in it because they believe Right? That's, that's the key for me. If you pass the mic to Daniel, something that I wanted to ask you on the subject of hiring is um, you're a serial entrepreneur. You've done a few startups, I understand. Um, a lot of entrepreneurs talk about early employees being able to scale with the company. 
and sometimes the first two, three, four hires that you make, they are excellent individuals. And as you go through your A round, B round, C round, etc., those people can scale as your company scales, and their role adapts and evolves as your company adapts and evolves. And sometimes they don't. How does an entrepreneur, uh, how does the entrepreneur's role change in those environments, and how do you deal with that progression of the early team? Yeah, so in the case of our current company, we're still, you know, the whole scaling thing is just about to happen. So, uh, so we'll find out, I guess. Um, but uh, in our case, it's, uh, it's been very much a, a tech company so far. So um, I think there it's a little bit different because their role will stay pretty similar to what they have been doing. Um, now we have some business people that we, like Marin, who we feel very confident are going to be able to scale with the company, but I've seen it in previous companies where sometimes people are perfect for like the initial phase, but later you see that they sort of, they're really good at sort of starting a company, but not that great at scaling. And then sometimes you have to sort of either find a different role for them or find new people who are better at scaling. But at the same time, I think something I've seen in my uh, previous career was that um, sometimes investors get scared too easily. So they think they need to bring in senior people and then they hire, you know, I, I can say this because I'm also an ex-consultant. I used to be at BCG. So then they bring in all these McKinsey and BCG people and they try to install processes and it's really annoying and everything up. And uh, so, so I think sometimes it is better to give the people who have been there from the beginning and who really have proven that they're passionate because they went through the hard times as well, to give them the chance to grow with the company. And that's what I would intend to do. And moving on to Mohammed, have you had a similar experience when it comes to the lifetime of your company's employees scaling with the business? So it's interesting to me, as the company scales, that um, new roles appear that allow, um, if somebody isn't scaling for that particular role they started off in, there's still other interesting things you can do. Um, if, there's a, if there's an atmosphere in the company that everyone's learning and there's just plenty of stuff to do around the mission. So it, uh, I, I know exactly the kind of conversations you're talking about, which are, and we've, had, we've lost a couple of people because of that. But one of the things I learned from, um, and, and always comes back to me, by the way, in not having spotted the signs early, not having to set them up for success, and left them too long in a role that they weren't happy, they were failing as well as the, they were failing the company. So um, I'm a lot more sensitive about them a lot earlier now. And either, um, and, and starting off with very intensive coaching where it doesn't look like it's working, as well as creating a sideways role where they can go into that and somebody else can take over. Growth fixes a lot of things. And once you've got that team in place, you're happy with your early team, and you've started to see some growth, potentially some revenue, it may, the time may come to raise investment, potentially from seed angel investors, or as you grow from a fund like Balderton, or even larger. Um, when did you know it was the right time, Mo? Because staying with you for a moment, you said the first investor in your company had to be you. When did you know it was time to go externally from yourself and uh, friends and family rounds that lots of people will be familiar with? I, I had no such, I was begging for money from day one. It's just, it's just that while everyone was saying no, I had to put my own money and my wife's money and, uh, and, and uh, beg from friends and family. And so just anyone who put money in, we would, um, 
I, I've got a friend in the States who left our company at the same time he did his own company. And I remember a few years ago, he was complaining to me saying, I've only got 18 months runway. And I just said to him, I've never had more than two months runway. Every month I'm scrambling to get payroll. Can you put 20,000 pounds in? Can you? Um, it's only until two years ago that we had um, a proper um, yeah, $1.1 million investment. And then uh, last year we got three and a half million pounds from Boulderton. So until then, it was very poorly capitalized and just um, trying to scramble. But what I will say, um, we definitely found the right investors eventually. It's not just that we demonstrated enough to get the right investors. I do believe that um, the ones who walked away from us, um, the ones who didn't put money, it was actually good for both sides. Um, I, I can say that now having survived, it was really painful at those times. Uh, but when you finally get to the right investors, it's, um, it, it, it's qualitatively different and, and it's much better. And um, maybe if we go back down the line to Jamie, uh, is it important for your investors to have real industry medical knowledge? Because, you know, a fund like Balderton, we invest across sectors. So we need the business to be a technology business, but they can be in finance, they can be in fashion, they can be in medicine. But medicine always strikes us as an industry that is so incredibly uh, specific and takes an incredible amount of training to get very, very good at. Do you need your investors to have an entry-level knowledge into, into medicine? Um, <clears throat> I, I don't think so. I mean... Um so I think the reason passion uh, invested in us was because, I mean, they don't have any healthcare or uh, medical. I think we're the first one, actually. And I, I think they just, they thought I was a doctor and thought, hey, this looks interesting. You know, it's like, so that was, I mean, it was the fact that, you know, I had that advantage, if you like, in this space that, that sort of um, made them sort of take a look at it. And I think that was probably one of the only... Um, sort of aspects of it. I, so, I mean, I, I, but I think it, to be sort of, you know, um, more sort of realistic about it, it's, I think it comes down to the business model and, and what space you're in. So in our case, are we really a sort of digital health business? Well, really, we're actually a marketplace. And, you know, Borderson, Passion, most of the sort of big tech VCs in London are, you know, they're very familiar with marketplaces. And, you, you know, marketplace, what are marketplaces? Marketplaces are just disintermediation plays, right, on sort of value change in existing industries. So you, you take out a middleman and replace it with a sort of more efficient uh, link in the chain. And so, you know, you can do that to almost any in industry. Um, and it has some advantage to have that, that sort of in-house expertise. So in, in our case, you know, we embed lots of sort of, you know, trust and vetting and, and sort of medical elements into the sort of um, technology, but it's not, yeah, it's not so critical that our investor understands that. In fact, it's almost better, again, to think of them as a complementary team member and that they can help you with other things that you can't do so well. Do you agree with that standpoint, Melissa, that your investors need to be somewhat extended members of the team? Um, so n none of my investors um, actually uh, have any experience in the NHS at all. Um, we had one term sheet actually from um, from a medical kind of specialist investor, which we turned down um, because I believe that to scale, it was more important to have technology um, investors um, than it was to have medical investors. What we did, I mean, I'm not a doctor, and I also can't code. So if I can do it, anyone can do it. 
Um, we, what we did is we basically created a board of, um, of, of medical advisors. And we started off with about three of them. Um, and now we've got about 15. And we're still looking for more. So if any of you, by the way, are doctors and you want to kind of come work with us on a consultancy basis, we've got more open positions um, for all types of doctors. Uh, and it works so well. And um, because they are not financially invested in the business, it's a much better relationship, actually. Um, I think that there comes a, weird, a bit of a weird dynamic when people are kind of financially incentivized and they have a, it's a bit, it's just a, from, from my experience, it's a little bit different. Um, so if you can get a panel of, of different types of doctors with different opinions and different views, you can get together with them and have great conversations. And I, I think that works really well. Daniel, do you, as, as the uh, other um, non-doctor, doctorpreneur on this panel, do you have a similar system where you have uh, non-financially invested uh, advisors of any kind? Um, yes, yes we do. So we have uh, some of these people and um, some of them have a medical background, some have a business background and it's sort of a, uh, a mix to um, help us with some ex external expertise in areas that are important. So to, to come back to your previous question, we don't, therefore we don't necessarily need investors who um, you know who are knowledgeable about the space um, as long as they believe in us that's all we need from them mainly and to pass it to the two gentlemen at the end Sean and Andre um, how did you even begin to raise the first uh, raise the first money that went into your business because I know once again going back to the audience there's a lot of very early stage entrepreneurs out there and you guys as we've spoken about many times before were surgeons and you had a great idea and from then on it was all a, a great mystery. Yeah, so um, it was a very, very long learning curve for us, right? Um, we probably spent about, I'm the Oxford story. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, we've, we probably went round every single VC that we could find in the phone book in London. We've sat in, you know, our deck used to be 60 slides. <clears throat> used to take an hour to go through. We used to have a, a slide that made, our, made the VCs guess what our monetization strategy would be. And we'd make them look silly when they got it wrong. <laughs> and then they'd tell us to go away and read more books. Um, you know, when it, com when it comes down to it, there are not many investors who've got medical knowledge. Right, medical, med tech is a new space. Um, there aren't really in the UK, you know, Bolton have, are gaining a lot of experience there, but there are very, very few investors who've got any medical knowledge whatsoever. Um, most of you guys have medical knowledge. You don't need your investor to have medical knowledge at a seed stage. What you do need help on is how to grow a business, how to hire people, how to build technology. Right, that's the gap that most of you guys will have. That's the gap that we had, right? So we ended up getting Boulderton as our seed investor, incredibly experienced at building amazing tech companies, right? So, you know, you've, don't, don't worry if your investor doesn't have medical background. You know, you guys have the medical background that you need. You understand the problem. You just have to convince them that you are the right team to solve the problem. That, that's it. Ask for twice as much money as you think you need. Especially from Borderton. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs>
to stay with you guys on the last question I'm going to put to you all before I uh, ask if there's any questions from the floor, um, is something I'm asking you, one, because when we did a podcast, all three of us, please take a listen, uh, ages ago, one thing that you mentioned was for the first one or two months or maybe longer in the life of touch surgery, you were very unwilling to actually say what touch surgery did in the fear that someone might copy the idea. And I know that that's a fear that other uh, potential entrepreneurs in this audience have just from a few conversations that I've had before. What you said on that podcast was you need to forget that and you need to start talking about what the business does because otherwise, how on earth is any investor going to put any money in? How on earth is anyone going to buy it? And how on earth are you going to communicate what you do? Um, what is your advice to entrepreneurs that may be a bit reticent to share their kind of gold dust of their good idea? It's going to sound quite harsh, but get over yourselves, right? Ideas are cheap. They are cheap. Everyone's got the same idea, right? It's don't, don't get stuck into kind of an inventor syndrome where you think, oh, I had the idea, therefore I'm the important person. It's all crap. It's all about execution, right? The companies that succeed are the ones that take a good idea but actually deliver, right? So, you know, we had, we had the same problem. We used to try and make all investors sign an NDA before we pitched them, right? We didn't get very far. Um, you know, we used to try and make sales without showing anyone the product. We did make sales without people showing people the product. Yeah. We did. We literally told one of our customers, you can't see this, but trust me, you want to pay for it. <laughs> what? What are we going to pay for? It's an app. Can't show it to you. <laughs> but, but literally, it's, you know, there are so many ideas out there in the world today. You know, everyone's got an idea. They're not going to come and steal yours. They might come and steal your business model, your technology, and your IP, and so on, but that's kind of way down the line. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's all about execution at this stage. It's all about telling the right story, executing on it, delivering. That's the important thing. It's not about the idea. Does anyone else down the line have anything to add on that particular point? Jamie, right at the end. Uh, yeah, so I mean, same, same kind of thing. I mean, we, so, I mean, it's pretty obvious our, our business model. Uber for carers, right? I mean, number of times people said, oh, that's a good idea, I'll do that as well. Yeah, and to be honest, actually about 10 other people have tried it, but the reason we raised most money is because basically I, I, I worked it out quicker than anyone else, um, not to be sort of, you know, uh, sort of arrogant about it, but because I was doing something else and sort of trying to work out how to work this other business model, I, I just, you know, came across this problem and realized that I could, I could leverage the existing company structure and technology I had that enabled me to sort of essentially get a 12-month head start on anyone else. And by the time anyone else had actually got their act together, we'd already got significant traction. And, you know, then it just becomes a sort of snowball effect. And you, yeah, so it, it's, it really is about speed of execution. And, and I think particularly with certain business models, where you know it's about network effects and sort of size size of that sort of platform. Audience, are there any questions from the floor? Please stick your hand up, and I'll get you a microphone so we can all hear. Excellent. Going to that gentleman right in the middle there. 
Thank you. Uh, so this is sort of for, for Jean and Andre. Uh, you talked about this slide that made investors gasp. Uh, what was it that made you so convicted that you guys were right if everyone's telling you that you're wrong? Have you heard that surgeons have got an ego? I guess to a certain extent, we had this notion that we wanted to create something that was going to make a significant impact. And so when we were in the kind of phase of building out a business model, touch surgery is free, by the way, guys. Right? Everybody would say charge and do this. And so what we tried to do within our entire process was remove any barrier to adoption. So we were like, how can we be hugely impactful, reach as many people as we can globally, get the product in as many people's hands as we could do at a rate that no one else can execute at? And so that had to have a model of production, of sales, of everything that required us to be super, super, super aggressive. And so we stripped out any cost that would be a barrier to adoption. And we were like, well, you know, we'll sell it in some way because Facebook did well. They were free. Right? Obviously, it wasn't the right pitch back then. But we had a, a notion and a deep belief that we could build a model around having a free product in the market. And we never went, no matter how many people put spreadsheets and showed us things, we never went against that because it's what we believed in. And I don't think we would have left surgery to have built a product that we would be selling, like, a, you know, just went against our beliefs. So ultimately, it comes down to the question of do you believe in yourself? And is the model that you're going to build, does that comply with the morals and the legacy that you want to leave in the world? For us, we had to be free and we had to change surgery. Does anyone else on the panel have anything to say about conviction in one's own business idea? And especially maybe how that conviction can be tested along the journey. Because I imagine when you're meeting a lot of investors, they will try and test the way your business works and question certain elements. So, conviction is really, really, really important. And I think everyone knows that. But I also think it's really important to listen. Because if you just keep... Like, we had it... We our, our business model was slightly... Well, quite a bit different at the beginning. And we weren't listening to what people were telling us. We actually went two years with really crap growth. And still, I believed, I believed, I believed, I believed. And then, you know, after a while, I got a bit worn down. And I actually did listen to what my customers were saying. And then we changed the business model. And then we grew 3x in six months. And it's like, yeah, you have to, you have to keep persisting. But don't confuse that with being blinkered and thinking that you're completely right all the time. Like you do have to have flexibility as well. Like, there is a, you know, a certain amount of, um, you do need to be arrogant, but you do also need to be humble too. Humble arrogance. Humble arrogance. <laughs> Achievable goals. Although but arrogant first, then humble. <laughs> noted.
Questions from the floor? Got a couple. So uh, marketplaces, so speaking, speaking to the two of you on the end, um, in the medical space, um, should we chase the user or chase the worker? It depends who's the supply. So whichever you consider is the supply side, get them first, line them all up, and then try and get the demand. Um, always, in my view. Uh, yeah. So supply first, but then it's a, it's a juggling act, right? So your if you, the problem is if you if you sort of if your marketplace gets out of whack, then you've got sort of customers who can't get a, the supply and suppliers who can't get the work. So you have to really calibrate that very carefully, and particularly when it's location-based marketplace. So in our case, you know we're sort of almost running 30 simultaneous sort of marketplaces in different boroughs of London, um, and you know that. That's not easy. I mean, it's sort of, you may have a lot of supply in one area and less demand. So, I mean, for example, all the carers really live in East London, and then there's not that many in Kensington, Chelsea, or Richmond. So, um, yeah, it, that's that's the challenge. And, and, you know, of course, it's chicken and egg as well. So, you when you start, okay, you've got to find the supply, but why would they want to come to your platform if you don't have any demand? So, you have to sort of somehow fake it to them that, you know, we've got lots of customers. And actually, one other thing. If you can create something that only the supply wants, like a tool. So um, we like made this Facebook group for GPs and um, like literally called it Melissa and Will's GP locum group. <laughs> Everyone thought it, we were GPs and that it was started by GPs. I mean, I didn't tell them that I wasn't. Um, but literally, I, I realized that do doctors... Um, they really, really need peer support, especially GPs. Like if they're in, the, if they're in the um, in the room with the patient and they don't know like what the answer is, there's a rash that they've never seen before. Um, they're actually using Facebook. I mean, this is it's not necessarily it's kind of breaching patient confidentiality, but they are using Facebook to take pictures of rashes and they're posting it on Facebook. And we basically created this closed Facebook group to allow people to have conversations. So we staffed it with um, some accountants, some lawyers, people that they need access to, and peers. And um, it grew to like 3,000 doctors in what, uh, less than a year. And then off that, then we launched the job side. So if you can think of a tool that your supply side needs and try and engage them, then they don't get pissed off that there's no jobs and you don't kind of have to lie. Um, just try and sort of think about that. Excellent. I think two more questions from the floor and then I'll let you all talk to each other and drink something. One right in the middle there. Hi, Melissa. Uh, my name is Manny. Uh, just a quick question. Um, you turned down a massive investment um, on that pro TV programme. Yeah. Was it like a problem of giving up ownership um, versus no. funding? Um, no. It was actually not a bad ownership, but in there, there were like ratchets. Um, and there was also like, basically, I had given um, the investor my projections, which I didn't believe in. I, I thought we were going to make like 18 million pounds of revenue by year two. They were really, they were a big joke. And he then tried to tie the like tranches of investment for me meeting my projections. So I knew I wasn't going to meet them. And it was just like things like that. And like I needed to get his approval to like buy stationery, for example. Like, all, like really shit and stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, I showed it to some like friendly lawyers that I knew and friends and my family. And they were just like, you know what, like your life's going to be really crap with this investor and you're not going to end up getting that money so try and go it alone and so that's what I did 
that you should always look for like dodgy stuff. It's not just about ownership. Would you agree with that? Yeah, Mohammed. Can I just echo that? So uh, it, it's a really bad sign when they put those things as term sheets. Um, it, it not just you will have a really bad time with them over multiple years if you survive that long. And the kind of investor that has previously managed to get investments in that way in the past, you can guarantee those investments went nowhere. Whereas the investors that have companies that take off don't do that because if, if they're spending their time micromanaging you, that company will never take off. They know the companies that do well are the ones that have the free money. If it doesn't work or it doesn't work, it wasn't worth the micromanaging and the ratcheting and so on. So wait for the right ones. Um, don't think that just having an investor is better than having no investor. It's extremely painful to walk away. Uh, and, and it's great to have the opportunity to walk away, but wait for the right terms. They're, they're a really bad sign of what's about. It's going to be worse. Anyone else on that? Sean? Boris and I are a very good investor. Thank you. Your check's in the post. Um, one more question from the floor. Hi, can I just ask to the, uh, all the medical doctors on the panel, how did you know when to stop your NHS careers or your medical careers? At what time, what made you decide to do that? And if any advice for a junior doctor who has an idea, who's on a training program, what, what kind of advice would you give? Go ahead, um, So I went to medical school and in the interview I said, I was never going to practice, I just wanted to write software. And everyone I tell this to says that was really brave. It was stupid. Four of them turned me down on the spot. And I was lucky that one of them said yes. But they all thought, this is a stupid, why are you coming to medical school? But I just thought, and I think that there's problems in healthcare that can be solved with technology. And I didn't see any uh, doctors who knew technology as an A-level student. So I thought, I'll do that. Now, having gone to the wards, but then within a day you notice there's so much you can solve within a minimal amount of computing knowledge um, that there was just so much you could do. So I then went on to do one year of house jobs because I like medicine so much. I like being with the patients. I like being with my colleagues. But after that year, I, I stopped and went back to the original plan. Um, but for me, it was the, the plan was always to, to leave um, regardless of how stupid that was in the beginning. Um, so... So I, I still have my medical license. Um, I still kind of practice very much, you know, literally 2% of my time now. But um, uh, in terms of the sort of actual training program, I, I mean, I, 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 my view would be that it's almost incompatible with doing something entrepreneurial because I think training programs are so much more demanding. Um, and I think if you start doing something entrepreneurial, you know, you, you've got to be prepared to leap at some point. Um, having said that, you know, you shouldn't leap all in one go. And I think you, know, you heard Mo earlier on talk about how he saved up a lot. I mean, I, I was actually working part-time up and... I mean, I still have income from medical source, even now, because I'm absolutely paranoid that, you know, I'm not going to have any money in three months, even though we've got a significant runway. And, and you know, I've been doing that for sort of five or six years. So I think, you know... One of the great advantages of being a doctor is that your your skills will always be in need. 
Um, and I think we've all, yeah, to all the dogs out there, you, you know, you've put all of those years of training in. And I think, in a way, you don't want to give it completely up. And I would say that if you can find a way of just earning income on the side, you know, that will give you a longer runway because it always takes so much longer <laughs> than you can think. And, you know, I'm, I'm heavily invested. In my, I'm, I'm 50,000 in with my company. I almost went bust. I was literally about to have to sell my house. Um, you know, the, the stress is just intense, you know, before getting that first fundraising. So, um, yeah, I hope that gives some, <laughs> some sense. I don't think there's one answer, right? Everyone is different. Um, you know, there are so many things to think about. You know, I was a doctor for nine years before I gave it up. It was my entire identity, right? You know, medics are like that, right? You're, you are your profession. Um, you know, if you're like me, you have a lot of family pressure, pressure to stay a doctor as well, right? Um, for me, the turning point kind of really came when I realized it was like literally now or never. You know, I hung on to a medical career for as long as I could. I took every opportunity to like take leave, study leave, how to program experiences and so on. You know, I had my number in, in North London. It was a really good post. And it was only, for me, it was really when I realized that a really good investor was willing to put in millions of dollars into some work that Jean and I had done, that it was like, hey, you know, this is really now or never. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And it comes down to, you know, what, what would I have regretted more? Would I have regretted not taking the opportunity? Or would I regret kind of leaving medicine more? Right, and I think for everyone, that point is going to be different, right? For me, I left it till literally the last minute, till literally it was like, ah, in two weeks' time, we're hiring people, right? So, um, but yeah, for me, it just comes around that, that element of, you know, when are you going to regret this decision for not going for it? Um, that's what tr changed it for me. I think the uh, culture and medicine is anti-failure okay just kind of remember you know it's hard to get into every year you've got exams every year you would pass you're always scared of failing then you get through then you have to apply for a foundation job then you're scared of where you end up so you're in a career which is just anti-failure and actually failure is just not something that you accept and so you naturally become someone who's very conservative the longer you're in that profession, the longer that you are very risk averse and you're in a career pathway where failure is not an option. When failure becomes an option, then you can leave. Because you have to look at yourself in the mirror and say to yourself, well, if I win, I win big. If I fail, I've got to be able to live with myself. Success is not easy. We still look every day in the mirror and think, you know, we could fail. We accept failure as an option. We embrace failure as an option. And if we fail, then at least we've had some fun doing it, right? 
So I think once you can really accept that risk, then you're ready. Thank you very much to all of our panelists. I think that was a fantastic session. Thank you also, just before we completely finish, thank you to Vishal and the Doctorpreneurs team who put this event together, and thank you to Daria from the Bulls and Capital team who did all of the organizational work from our side. So thank you to them, and now please do grab a glass of wine, enjoy yourselves, and thank you very much.